Oh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'm super glad you're here. Um, that's something, this brunch is something we do, I don't know, this time every year, partially because we had 168 people at our Christmas candlelight last weekend, um, which is why, you know, you were packed in here like sardines. We have found, we have found the point at which there are too many people in the room. So next year, uh, our staff is already kind of talking about we're probably going to need to do two of those suckers. So we've got to figure out what that looks like. And everybody's a little like, ah, about that, but we'll work it up. We'll work up our courage over the next 51 weeks and uh, come back at you fresh. Um, so uh, just a couple announcements, and then we're going to do offering. Um, there's no bulletin today. If you need an envelope, they're in the back, but whatever, you can grab it after. Just a couple of announcements. Regen, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And uh, there's a couple of things that we're doing about that. There's some check-ins right now that go to church planters in Sicily. Sheila and Andrea Crochevera. Uh, we're going to be doing something different next year with our check-ins. They're going to last a whole quarter long so that we can kind of highlight something longer slash also it makes it easier for us so we don't have to keep changing things. So that's one thing and uh, that'll be really cool. Um, that's our check-in. So if you have a phone, pull it out, check in, let us know that you were here. Um, the second thing is our circles all kick back up not this coming week, but next. So the Byler, Cirque Byler Banning is on Tuesday the 8th. The Cooper Britt Mangieri is on Wednesday the 9th and Student Circle come back Sunday the 13th. Um, when we go on leave, Steph and I will be going on leave for a month each when the baby comes, uh, Student Circle will move. So if that affects you, just keep an eye on that. Um, it'll be going to um, Lisa Sheskos, who's one of the moms of our students and who uh, attends Grace Campus. The other thing I wanted to let you know about, so join a circle this spring. Uh, they're great. We had a lot of really great conversations with our circle leaders at the end of the semester. They were all very eager to get back going that week. Um, so if there's some room in your schedule on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, jump in there. It's really been rich for the people participating in that. And then the last thing is, um, this is going to be like the one big push from now to the end of February. We're doing our Better Together Couples Conference on Saturday, February 23rd at this location. Uh, doctors Bob and Pam McRae from Moody Bible Institute uh, will be coming and leading that. And we had a couple here, it was a multi-age conference, so people often do this thing because I think it's because I'm a young pastor, they assume that everything is for young people. So I get a lot of like, is this for young marrieds? And my answer to that would be, we had couples, a couple last year at the marriage conference that were married for 50 years and they said that they learned something. So Bob and Pam really bring it. And... Um, so that'll be, there's a cost for that that we've got to figure out and some stuff like that, but mark your calendar, Saturday, February 23rd is Couples Conference. Um, uh, Zach Byler, do you and Zoe want to pray for the offering? Yeah. All right, just come on up here and do that. God, there was not a moment in 2018 that we were beyond your finding. And so we're thankful that in 2019, you will always come and find us when we need you. And uh, Lord, we just pray that your name would be lifted high in us and in our church uh, in 2019. Uh, Lord, be with us as we hear from you. Thank you so much that you want to be here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So... Advent is that time of the year when we kind of count down and relive the waiting of Israel for their Messiah, the waiting of the world for the Messiah. 
And it's the four Sundays before Christmas Eve and then Christmas Eve and then Advent is over and it gives way to Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas. There's no kids ministry this week, by the way. We're just all hanging out together. It'll be quick. And uh, so the 12 days of Christmas, partridges and pear trees, five golden rings, all that kind of stuff. And one of the days in those 12 days is the Feast of Epiphany. Epiphany is that word that means like, aha, Eureka, I figured it out. Epiphany marks the day when the wise men uh, find Jesus, which as we kind of briefly talked about last week, is not something that happens at Christmas. It's not happens that, something that happens when Jesus was an infant. When the wise men find Jesus, the Greek of the text in Matthew indicates that Jesus was a little boy, maybe one or two, maybe even three years old. He was hiding in his mother's skirts. He wasn't lying in a manger. And there's two important facets to the story of the wise men or the magi. One of those facets is, yes, what they find, that they find the Christ child. But another important facet to that story is the seeking itself. It's the seeking and the searching that the wise men do over a great distance and at great personal risk. And it turns out as Jesus grows and begins his ministry that seeking and searching remains something very important to him. Uh, the, the, The searching and the questing And the looking and the desiring matter to Jesus. And this is something we learn in John 1. We looked, if you were with us at Candlelight, like that 1, 1 through 18 text. Later on in that chapter, it kind of fast forward to Jesus as an adult. And in chapter 1, verse 35 of John, it says, The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. John is standing with two of John the baptizer's disciples. He's got some of his own. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following and said, what do you want? What do you want? John the Baptist identifies Jesus to some of his disciples. There's the Lamb of God. And when he does this, two of his disciples go following after Jesus. And not in that spiritual sense of come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As in there goes Jesus down that road. Let's go see what he's doing, right? And so Jesus, after a few minutes, turns around, sees them following him. And he asks them an interesting question. It's my favorite question that Jesus asks in all of the gospels. He asks a lot. It's my favorite question. His question is, what do you want? He doesn't ask. He doesn't ask questions about their doctrine or their theology. He doesn't ask for a resume of their good works. He doesn't have a lot of interest in what they have or haven't done. He doesn't ask about their money or their past or their reputation or their influence. He asks them, he asks them about their wants. He asks them about their desires and their wishes. He asks what it is that they are seeking. Our desires, our wants, our hopes, our wishes, the things we seek, the things we chase after, our appetites, our thirsts are incredibly important to Jesus. This is why so much of Jesus' teaching aims not at our believing, not at our doing, but at our wanting, but at our wanting. For example, Jesus says, blessed are, the, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He says, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. 
Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus stands in a long line of scripture. He knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And when he is speaking about hunger and thirst, he's not the first one to do so. Isaiah 55, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good, Isaiah says. You will enjoy finest food. Psalm 27, 4. One thing that I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 42. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God. I thirst for the living God. See, our desires matter to Jesus. They matter to how we follow him. They matter to our participation in the way of Jesus because it's our desires. It's our wants. It's our wishing and our longings. These are the things that ultimately get in the way of our obedience, of following in his way, of wrapping our lives around him. What we find when we look carefully at this question, what do you want, is an invitation to reflect on the very nature of our desires. And in this question, Jesus is, is, is saying this about what it looks like to follow him. He says, discipleship and practicing the way is more about hungering and thirsting than it is about thinking and believing. Discipleship is about hungering and thirsting more than it is about thinking and believing. Jesus knows that we are a lot like sharks. Uh, here's your biology lesson for that. We're going to smatter. We're going to do philosophy. We're going to do church history. We're even going to throw some biology in here this morning. Jesus knows that we're a lot like sharks. Sharks have to remain moving to live. Sharks, when they sleep, shut down portions of their brain, but they have to remain moving to stay alive. The minute a shark stops moving is the minute a shark dies. And what Jesus is kind of pointing to in this question is that we are existential sharks. We are always on the move. We are always moving toward things. We are always propelled, not by our little finny fin fins, we are propelled by our desires and our wants. We are always moving toward something, whether it's safety or security or liberation or knowledge or prestige or comfort or holiness. It doesn't matter what we're moving to. It matters that we are always inescapably moving toward something, which is why Augustine, Augustine says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, it is my love carrying me. My weight is my love, and wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Now, this next section, I'm going to just be super honest. I'm indebted to a guy named John Mark Cummer and my Church History II professor. But this is St. Augustine, not St. Augustine. That's the city in Florida. Augustine, say it that way, and people at your dinner party on New Year's Eve will be impressed. Augustine is an early church father. He lived from about 354 to 430. Uh, as a young man, he lives a wild, licentious lifestyle. I mean, there is no pleasure on the planet that Augustine did not taste as a young man. And uh, yet he keeps coming up empty. So one day he finds himself in a garden, the story goes. He finds himself in a garden. He has a copy of the scriptures that his mother gave him. Uh, his mother was a believer. And uh, he's just kind of despairing how pointless and empty his life feels. And on the other side of the hedge, kind of on the other side of the garden, he hears a child singing, 
pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. So he picks up this copy of the scriptures that he has, starts reading, and bam, has a radical experience of grace in the presence of, of the Holy Spirit through his word. God says his word never returns to him, his, him void. It accomplishes the purposes for which he intends it. And so Augustine reads this, and I mean, bam. Augustine goes on to be one of the most important people in church history in his lifetime and will go on to affect the rest of Western culture for the next 1,200 years. Augustine's writings, The City of God, um, a handful of others, um, are, live at this intersection of philosophy and theology and science, which were shared disciplines until the Enlightenment. Until the Enlightenment, if you were a philosopher, you were also a scientist and you were also a theologian. These were, dri- these were practices that kind of worked together until the Enlightenment. And Augustine writes all these books. They're still really important in, any, any, in fields today like military ethics because Augustine was the first person to argue for a just war theory um, to philosophy, to human anthropology, to human nature. Augustine pens this line that's actually on my Instagram account. Our, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And Rene Descartes, much later, a French philosopher, would, would one day coin this term that we all learned, which is, I think, therefore I am. Augustine disagrees. Augustine does not say, I think, therefore I am. He says, I love, therefore I am. As Augustine reflects on scripture, he explains that human beings are not primarily doers or thinkers. So imagine, you know, you go to the, uh, imagine a human being when they're wearing those giant fingers you get at the... Uh, football game, right? We're not doers. We're not primarily hands. We're not bobbleheads. We don't have these big heads and little bodies. Actually, our biggest feature is our heart. Our hearts are restless. Our, our, our hearts drive us and propel us that we as human beings are primarily desirers and wanters and lovers. Augustine says that in order to be a whole human and ultimately in order to practice the way of Jesus, we have to curate our loves, as it were. We have to order them properly. Uh, Sin, Augustine says, is what happens when our loves are out of order. Righteousness, living in the image of God, is what happens when our loves are rightly ordered among our ultimate love. uh, Revelation talks about our first love. You've lost your first love, he says to the Ephesians church. That's because their loves had gotten out of order. Listen, it is okay to love family. It is okay to accrue wealth. It is okay to have a home with a bajillion Christmas decorations. It is okay to have a beautiful home. It is okay to want to be comfortable. It is okay to want to be healthy. It is okay to want to be thin. It is okay to love food. It is okay to love all of these things as long as they are properly ordered, as long as they are properly ordered around our ultimate love, which is Jesus. When I sit down with people and I have coffee with them, when I talk about problems in their marriage, when I talk to them about problems in their personal life, it is always, always, always a problem of disordered loves. And the way of Jesus is this lifelong practice of rightly ordering our loves, of rightly ordering our loves. Now, the world was happy to accept Augustine's understanding of Scripture and, in particular, human nature, and it did so until the late 1800s when a German psychologist named Sigmund Freud turned everything Augustine had to say upside down on its head. Freud agreed with Augustine that human beings were primarily desirers. Freud and Augustine have this in common. We're primarily desirers and wanters and lovers. 
But Freud parts ways with Augustine when he says that the dysfunction in the human psyche comes not from disordered desires, but suppressed desires. Freud says that the dysfunctions in the human psyche come from suppressed desires, desires we suppress to please our parents or religious authority figures or our cultural norms. And when we suppress those desires, Freud said that's what leads to psychosis. And so the best way forward for Freud's estimation was to let your desires loose. This, by the way, is exactly how we describe our culture, right? In, in Augustine's time, in a pre-Freudian world, sin was disordered desire. Sin was, I have all of these loves and they're kind of out of order. In our modern moment, in this 21st century moment, sin is not following your desires, right? Sin is doing anything other than following your heart. And, and, and sin also in our culture is telling somebody else that their desires are invalid, right? The, the mere suggestion that somebody's desires might be invalid lie at the very core of our cultural like, <gasps> right? And, and this switch from let's order our desires and live in self-control and self-mastery to follow your heart, to, to follow your dreams, it, it is ultimately responsible for the cultural shifts that we have seen over the last 50 or so years. It is the responsible for the free love movement in the 1960s, for feminism in the 1970s, for the divorce boom in the 1980s, to latchkey kids in the 1990s, and then this even kind of present sexual revolution around LGBTQ stuff right now in the mid-2000s and into, into our decade. And the question present in our culture is this, are our desires to be ordered and disciplined or are they to be followed without question? That is the fundamental, uh, the issue in our culture, I'll even go this far, our greatest struggle as a culture isn't with the nature of truth, it's with the nature of desire. It's with the nature of desire. And our culture's loudest cry is for freedom and liberation and the setting free of every possible desire. And that has unwittingly found its way into the thinking of the people of Jesus who say to themselves, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? And then this leads to all sorts of things. Because God wants me to be happy, God wants my church to make me happy, and he wants my pastor to make me happy. And if my church doesn't make me happy or my pastor doesn't make me happy, I will go find another church. Or I will make the people in my church so miserable and bully them to the point that they just do whatever I want. Because God wants me to be happy, God doesn't mind too much when I give a passing glance to a coworker or have a deep emotional conversation over text message late in the middle of the night with someone that's not my spouse. It's, it's just a conversation. It's just coffee. It's just a little emotional intimacy. Because God wants me to be happy. He doesn't mind when I spend more time and more money on my kids' activities and invest them there than in the way of Jesus. And God will be fine eating around the edges of our time with whatever we have left. Because God wants me to be happy, his number one job is to make sure I and the people I love never get sick, never ever get cancer, and die nothing but a very peaceful death late in, their, late in age. Because God wants me to be happy, God doesn't mind being used as a tool or as a magic wand or as an easy button. And against that backdrop of our culture, we miss the teachings of Jesus, who is very content. Not, Jesus will never out-yell the world. 
First of all, he doesn't need to because he's overcome it. But second of all, he's a gentleman, right? And so in this cacophony in our culture, there's this still small voice of Jesus who describes himself as meek and lowly of heart. Not the best advertising campaign on the planet, meek and lowliness of heart. Doesn't tweet well, it doesn't Instagram well, but he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, self-denial and the discipline of our desires is at the very core of what it means to follow Jesus. Where our culture tells us that to be human and to be authentic and to be real is to take whatever desire you have and let it rip. He says, if anyone would follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. I looked up the Greek for the word daily. It does not mean for an hour on a Sunday. It does not mean for an hour on a Sunday and Christian radio in the car. It does not mean for an hour on Sunday and Christian radio in the car and a Bible on my nightstand that I don't look at. It does not mean an hour on a Sunday and Christian radio in the car and a Bible I sometimes read and I occasionally go to a circle. It says, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. It is an incredibly high demand. Following Jesus isn't about getting Jesus to bless our desires Bless our wants, bless our opinions, bless our seeking. Following Jesus is ultimately a lifelong journey of self-denial and dying to our desires so that we can truly live. It is a journey of curating and ordering our desires around Jesus so that Jesus has more room to work. It's giving Jesus the most freedom to do what he wants to do in our lives. So the question we ought to ask, especially as we look to a new year, is how are we to curate and order our desires so that Jesus has more room in our lives? How do we do that? Well, a few practices for you this week and next. First, do an audit of your desires. When Jesus asks, what do you want? He's not looking for you to say a bagel. He's looking for us to look at our wants. He's asking us to look at what we want. I mean, I like bagels, but I think Jesus is looking for a better answer than that. So answer Jesus' question, what do you want, and answer it honestly. A good way to answer this is to figure out what you prayed for over the last year most. Whatever you prayed for most over the last year is actually what you want deepest, whether that's security or comfort or whatever. Another good way to reflect on this is look at your schedule. Look at your calendar. Our priorities reflect our desires, and our priorities are always revealed on our schedule. If you want to know whether or not you prioritize something, is it on your calendar or not? Andy Dillard says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And it's true. How we spend our days. We, we kind of always put things up. We all do this, millennials especially. We keep putting off the important for later as if we'll have time later. But the way that we spend our lives kind of procrastinating on the important, the way we spend our days procrastinating on the important is at the end of the day how we will have spent our lives. So you gotta do more than audit mentally. You gotta take out a piece of paper, not tomorrow, because you're gonna be running around making your disgusting sauerkraut. Gross. What is, what is wrong with you people? And... Um, ew, let's, let's eat this fermented vegetable. Huh. Um, okay. Don't bring me some next week and be like, if you, you'll like mine, because I won't, okay? Um, you want to grab a piece of paper, you know, Wednesday, on, on New Year's Day, and, what, and write out the desires of Jesus, write, write out the desires, and then invite Jesus to respond. 
These are my desires. Jesus, what do you have to say to this? How do you want to get my attention? What do you want to do there? That's, that's the first practice. The second practice is creating space in your day and in your week to be intentional about ordering your desires. This is obviously a pregame to this whole series we're going to do on practicing the way of Jesus. It's a pregame to a lot of next year being you're going to have homework, okay, every week. And whether or not you decide to press into that is between you and Jesus. I mean, I'll judge you, but nobody else will. And um, totally kidding. And, uh, and, and what orders our desires is daily, weekly, regular rhythms of practicing the way, engaging with the spiritual disciplines. What do the spiritual disciplines do? Nothing. What do the spiritual disciplines do? Nothing other than open us up to God's grace, which does everything. What does like reading your Bible every day do? Well, the problem with the Pharisees was they read their Bible every day and had no knowledge of Jesus, right? So it's obviously gotta be more than that, right? So, so what, what is it that Jesus is asking of us is to do these disciplines to open us up to him so he can do everything. Spiritual disciplines on their own do nothing. Spiritual formation, which is kind of the lifelong process of using spiritual disciplines, which now we're getting into my sweet spot. I'm excited about next year. Spiritual disciplines is really just how we open ourselves up to God so that our inner life becomes like the inner life of Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is for our habits to be formed in such a way that like when we're startled or caught off guard, we still respond like Jesus would respond. Not like kind of deep thinking, but something changes. So here's a few practices for you to consider for next year. One, uh, read the Bible every day or most every day. Four out of seven is pretty darn good. One of my favorite apps for this is Read Scripture, uh, the Read Scripture app, which is uh, with the Bible Project. There's videos in between explaining every book. It's super helpful. Again, I say this all the time. There, we live in a golden era of Christian knowledge. There's no reason not to understand what the Bible is doing when everybody is bending over backwards to make it possible. So that's one. Read Scripture. Pray daily. Uh, some people in our community are using an app called Pray As You Go. Uh, and you can download it, and as you drive, it kind of is this really well-accented English person with some chanting in the background, but like kind of guiding you through some prayer. It's very contemplative. It's very good. It's very good. Pray as you go. You can journal. Uh, you know, believe it or not, attending worship regularly, worship shapes our desires. And we're going to talk about this next week, but I just want to say this. Um, look at the invitation of Jesus. He says, come to me. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? He says, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. See, the goal of Jesus is for you to live freely and lightly and with rest, which means Jesus isn't asking you to do more. He's asking you to do less, which at a side note means being ruthless with these things on our calendars that carry us away from him. He's asking us to do less. He's asking us to find satisfaction in him. He's asking us to reorder our desires around him because our hearts are restless. And when they rest in any other love, we do not find the rest we're seeking only Jesus. See, I knew I needed to get it in one more time. Jesus only. Jesus only gives us the rest we're looking for today and which we need forever. Let me pray. Um, Jesus, thank you for giving us rest. 
that you come to us uh, and, and give us yourself. Um, thank you, Jesus, that you um, come to us to satisfy our hunger. Thank you that you uh, wrestle these other loves so that we can rest in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I think it's so powerful that we are given something called communion, this, this supper, is that it, it is a regular reminder that Jesus is interested in our appetites, right? That Jesus is very, I mean, he picks the most basic thing to point us to him, which is a meal. And so we come to this table every week knowing that our desires were, were out of whack and with the prayer that even in the eating and drinking of this, they would kind of be realigned, right? That's the goal of this table. We believe that Jesus makes himself present in sanctifying grace um, to make us more holy. He also comes to us in justifying grace, which is why this table is open to anybody because we have had people meet Jesus at this table. And so um, the way that we do communion is we'll break the bread, we'll rip off a piece of the bread. It's a reminder that grace is given. It's not taken. It's not a buffet item. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's have... Um, Aaron, Jesse, and Kayla, and Chris Orr, please come help me out. That was a lot, I'm sorry. <laughs> it comes out very quickly. Um, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And the same night also, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many in forgiveness of sins. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We have gluten-free, so the table is ready. Yesterday, today, and forever, he is always consistently himself. The good news is only this, that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so 2019 is full of his grace and full of his mercy just as it was in 2018. So I'm excited for us to walk this year together. Um, but I love you. We'll see you next year.